know the supernatural is something that isn't supposed to happen, but it does it. AM 1420 WBSM presents Spooky South Ghost with your hosts, Tim Weisberg and Matt Costa. Good evening. Welcome to a very special edition of Spooky South Coast tonight. Tim Weisberg here alongside the silent assassin Matt Costa, working his magic on the boards. Matt, you ready for this huge and uh, groundbreaking show? I am. I was born ready. This might be the biggest Spooky South Coast we've ever done. It could very well be. Both in the scope of what we're trying to accomplish in two hours and, and the, the quality of guests that we have with us tonight. And and Chris Balzano, too. He's yeah, and me, too. <laughs> Chris Balzano of the Massachusetts Paranormal Crossroads is alongside tonight as a guest host, and as well as Keith Johnson, demonologist and founder of NIR. He is sitting in the, the science advisor seat tonight. He's going to be our Matt Moniz while Matt Moniz is out in the field. How are you tonight, Keith? I'm doing just fine. Yes, as I said, this is a huge show tonight because tonight marks the 30th anniversary of the Dover Demon Sighting. Uh, anybody who has ventured into the world of cryptozoology in their research and in their reading is well aware of the Dover Demon, even those who have, you know, just l- read up on a lot of the uh, mythology and and uh, folklore of what's happened in Massachusetts. This is a huge, huge case, and we actually have joining us tonight the cryptozoologist himself, the original investigator of the Dover Demon case, Lauren Coleman, will be with us in just a couple of minutes, as well as Jeff Belanger, the mayor of GhostVillage.com. Uh, and author of numerous books such as Our Haunted Lives, Ghosts of War, and The World's Most Haunted Places. He'll be along as well. And we're, we're kind of trying to cover all the bases of the Dover Demon case, both what happened originally, what you know, the original sighting that happened 30 years ago today, as well as some of the reports that still might be out there today. You know, maybe, uh, maybe there's been similar sightings in other areas of such strange creatures uh, as the Dover Demon. If you've ever experienced anything like this or... or you know, you've held it in and you haven't reported it. Now is the time you can call us in. We'll, we'll call into us. We'll be taking calls all night long. 508 996 0500, 508 2910 And in addition, we're going to have out in the field, actually on their way to Dover, Massachusetts as we speak, uh, science advisor Matt Moniz, as well as John Horrigan of the Mass Monster Mash Conference and the Mass Mystery Tour, which we'll get into that later on. We're going to make some huge uh, announcements regarding those two events a little bit later on in the show, so stay tuned for that. And uh, we'll also keep you up to date on everything that, that Jeff and Chris and Keith and everybody's doing as well. And, and we'll talk about Lauren's book, Mysterious America, which is uh, getting a big update and re-release as well. So why don't we get right into the discussion, and we'll bring on the cryptozoologist himself. He's known throughout the world as one of the leading researchers of cryptids, of undiscovered creatures, uh, you've seen him on numerous specials on the History Channel, on the Sci-Fi Channel. I just watched a special with him on the Travel Channel. Uh, he's he's all over the place because he is the authority. And he owns his own website, laurencoleman.com, and you can also read his writings on cryptomundo.com, which uh, we are big uh, fans of. I know Matt Costa goes there every day to check out the latest news. I do. I'm a big fan. And that That's your area of interest is cryptozoology. So this is an honor for you to be able to talk to Lauren Coleman. It is. <laughs> All right. Good evening, Lauren. How are you doing? Good evening. Well, I even mentioned this show on Crypto Mundo, so I hope you get some new listeners tonight. We thank you so much for that. We we uh, we like the way that things are presented on that site, and, and just the approach that you take to things as well. Uh, everything's it's, it's a very Fordian approach. You're looking to prove something scientifically. Uh, you're looking at this from a, a more you know 
cryptozoological earthbound way more than the paranormal. And whenever anybody can take that approach first and foremost, you know, it just gives something like the Dover Demon so much more credence, I think. Well, thank you. Well, I do have a – comes from my anthropology, zoology, and Fortean background, so I can't help myself. <laughs> it's, you, you hear something like this, and these days with so much of the, the paranormal being prominent in the media, if something like the Dover Demon were to happen today, wouldn't you think most people would just immediately jump to a, a UFO connection? Well, you know, it, it did happen back then, too, and it is interesting because – as part of the investigation, and, you know, I, I've mentioned this many times in writings and in the book, that uh, I was able to interview all the witnesses right away, and then part of the, the investigative approach that I took was that I wanted to get some other investigators in, and people like Walt Webb and, uh, you know, Joseph Nyman and, um, you know, uh, what was his name, uh, Oh, gosh, the other guy. Oh, Fogg, Ed Fogg. And they were all connected to UFO organizations. And so people in the beginning, it was interesting because a lot of people said, well, this has to be UFO connected. And to have three UFO-type individuals involved and for them to immediately reject that was kind of good because it, it immediately put this as an extremely unique case that was different than any other before and and as far as I know, except for a few hoaxes and some weird pictures and you know, people trying to make some very dubious connections, it's still rather unique in history. And it is nice to be here on the 30th anniversary. Now, it, it's funny because it was 30 years ago. We're talking about a time when you know, we didn't have cell phone cameras and we didn't have uh, digital cameras in the front seat of our cars. And, and this kind of technology you know, it was out there, but... It, it wasn't available. Nobody was driving around with picture, uh, cameras in their car in case they ran into something. Uh, so we're relying on eyewitness reports. Uh, why don't you walk everybody through uh, what originally happened 30 years ago today? Okay. Well, let's uh, start 15 miles southwest of Boston and in Dover, Massachusetts. At that time, there was a population of about 5,000 individuals. There actually was more horses in town, in, in the town of Dover, than there were people. And it was uh, during a 25-and-a-half-hour period on April 21st to 22nd when this occurred. And the first sighting was uh, William Bartlett. Bill Bartlett was 17. He was up Dover. He was driving around in his Volkswagen on the evening of April 21st. And let's see, it was 10.30 p.m., and they were driving north on Farm Street approaching Smith Street when all of a sudden Bill looked over to the side, and on, there's a rock wall there. And what he noticed and what he saw very vividly in the headlights was this creature that appeared to be walking on all fours, and it had strange little feet um, and hands that looked like they were long, uh, you know, digits. And, and the creature, the, the way he described it, it had two large, round, glowing glassy, it lidless eyes, shining brightly like two orange marbles. He also said the head, which looked shaped like a marble, was about the same size as the rest of the body. So this enormous head was staring out at him. He noticed that the body was a peach color, a kind of a, a lighter orange, and he described the skin as like a shark skin, like wet sandpaper. And so they went by it, uh, and his friends, the two other friends in the car with him, didn't see it because they were distracted. They were talking. 
And then he said, did you guys see that? Did you guys see that? And they wanted him to go back, and he was very scared. He, he didn't want to go back at all. But finally he turned around on Glen Street and then uh, came back, and they were doing things like hanging their head out the, the window saying, come on, creature. And, of course, that made Bill even more scared. So uh, he just skedaddled out of there and went home. Now, even you're, you're very correct. There were no cell phones cameras there were no video cameras that were so accessible but what we did have is bill bartlett who amazingly has a photographic memory and is today a well-known artist in the area so this young man goes home he tells his parents he's scared to death but what does he immediately want to do get out his sketch pad because he already had done art in the schools and start doing these drawings that became very famous and course on the internet you can find them all over so that was the first sighting the second sighting occurred two hours later when john baxter who uh, was seeing his girlfriend was walking home from his girlfriend's house around midnight and was at the south end of miller's hill road when all of a sudden up in front of him he saw this this thing this sort of shadowy figure bipedally you know upright like a human a little human and he knew that a friend of his in the neighborhood had a head that was bigger than normal, he thought. I mean, it was very funny to recall the interview I had with him. And he thought this it was his friend. So he started yelling out, MJ, is that you? <laughs> MJ, is that you? And, you know, the kid with the big head, it wasn't him. The, the creature didn't say anything to him. And, and believe it or not, they walked towards each other until they were about 15 feet away. And they said, who is that? Who is that? And the creature all of a sudden took off, ran into a gully up a little slope and leaned against a tree. And and Baxter, uh, you know, he could have elaborated. If this was some kind of hoax, he could have elaborated and said it was orange. But all he ever reported that it was a, uh, a creature that basically stood upright against the tree, had the same shape, you know, the big head, uh, the spindly fingers around the tree trunk and were molded on rocks. But all he saw was the blackness of the creature, although he saw the eyes glowing faintly, but not with any color. Mm-hmm. So uh, he, of course, skedaddles home and, and kind of shaking. And, and he, for whatever reason, it almost feels like Close Encounters of the Third Kind as far as how these two young men were obsessed by their sighting because Baxter gets out a sheet of paper He's not known to be an artist, but he starts drawing what he saw because he couldn't believe he saw this thing. So that was uh, that was those two sightings. Then the third sighting occurred when Abby Brandon and Will Tanner were driving along around midnight, almost exactly 24 hours after the Baxter sighting, and they were uh, driving a quarter mile out of Dover Center on Springdale Avenue when Abby said she saw something in the headlights on the left lane of the road uh, near a culvert, really, near the Trout Brook. And the creature was on all fours. It seemed to be crossing the road and looked like to her, she described it sort of like a monkey, but it had a body that was hairless, beige in color, tannish beige, had no nose, eyes, ears, or tail, exactly like uh, both the other young men had said. None of these creatures... Seen these of the creature sightings 
said that they could see eyes or nose or any, I mean, they saw eyes, I mean nose or uh, mouth. Mm -hmm. And what she said, that the eyes were green. And this became very important in our investigation because what we tried to do was really, you know, investigative technique, so to speak, the good cop, bad cop kind of thing. We tried to make her feel that, that there was something wrong with the report because everybody else had said the eyes were orange. And she came across as one of the most dynamically positive and credible witnesses because she said, I don't care what anybody else says, I know those eyes were green. So uh, she said that uh, as far as, uh, and the car went by. The Now, Will Tantor didn't, didn't have as great a sighting, but he had what I would call a, a confirming sighting. He said that it was a brownish sort of thing had crossed the road. He knew that she'd seen something, but uh, he didn't get as good a view. What's uh, remarkable about that is that Will had been told, uh, apparently by Bartlett, that he had seen something and wasn't quite sure what it was. Abby didn't know the sighting of Bartlett's had occurred at all, and Baxter hadn't known about the other sightings either. This was a school vacation week for these uh, these young people. And so they had not contaminated each other with you know, talking about it or showing each other drawings. And it was only next week, a couple days before I uh, was able to interview them, that they really started figuring out that more than, uh, you know, that more than one person had seen the thing. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, I mean, what you got was independent, independent observations from each person that kind of just confirmed what the other people were talking about. Oh, yeah. We went in. Uh, I mean, I went in before anybody, and I interviewed all of the, the teenagers separately. I interviewed their parents, uh, the chief of police, a uh, science teacher at school, and I started uh, in a widening circle of acquaintances, interviewed more and more people in Dover about these uh, these individuals in the area and found out if there are any horse, you know, baby horses missing, different things like that. So that I had done that even before the other investigators came in, and they did it all over again, plus uh, talking to more people. So I, I had never been, you know, that, and that was 1977, I'd never been so comprehensively involved in such a wide-ranging investigation. I was living right across the border over in Needham, uh, working at the Walker School, so it was very convenient for me. And I was running the, the overnight program, so I... I used all my days to, to do this investigation. Sometimes, though, that, that synchronicity when, when things work out like that. Oh, yeah, it was it was great coincidence. We also have on the line uh, with us uh, Jeff Belanger from ghostvillage.com, uh, who was nice enough to provide us with some audio uh, of Bill Bartlett and what he saw that, that first night. Uh, now, Jeff, you got this audio many years later, of course. Lauren was on the scene you know, just days after it happened, and you spoke to Bill about how long ago? Uh, this would be November of 2006. So, yeah, very fairly recently. Yeah. And and when you talked to him, uh, was your what, what was your impressions of, of what he was telling you, you know, 30 years later? Well, you know, it's interesting to, to hear Lauren tell the story. And actually, in a minute here, we'll hear right from the horse's mouth, we'll hear Bill tell the story. Uh, it, it, was, it was just a few seconds of his life, you know, arguably probably less than 10. And, uh, you know, when he tells the story today, it, I was actually joking with Lauren the other day about this. It, it, I think he always starts the story the same way, and that's like this. <sighs> okay, here's what happened, you know, this big sigh, because he's told it so many times. 
Um, but he's sticking to his guns, you know. Um, and as we'll hear a little bit later, uh, he, he, I don't think he likes that this event really is such a, a defining part of his life. He wants to be known as, a, as an artist. And as Lauren said, he is an artist. And though there were no cell phones or, or cameras around, we, we have an artist. We had an artist who could go back and, and, you know, who understands something about perspective and size and ratio and, and could draw this thing, which was very interesting. Um, so, I, I mean, I was, I was interested in speaking with him for, for a book project I'm working on now. Um, but, you know, there's, there's nothing like getting to a hot case right after it happened like Lauren did. And I think what you're going to hear here in a minute is very interesting that, um, you know, he, he hasn't changed his story one lick. And I should also point out, too, uh, for, for people trying to find these pictures that were drawn uh, on the Internet, we have both of them on the blog at SpookySouthCoast.com. If, uh, if, you go to, if you go to our site, SpookySouthCoast.com, click on the blog. It'll be the first posting up there. You'll see uh, both the drawings that, that Lauren was talking about before, and you can get an idea of you know, exactly what it is that they saw. And there's so many uh, versions of these, photo, of these drawings out there now on the Internet that have been colorized and people have taken them and taken some artistic license with them but uh, we do believe that the two that we have up there are the originals and now we will play the clip uh, provided by Jeff Belanger of his interview with Bill Bartlett and we just want to point out this is a, a spooky South Coast exclusive right Jeff? That's it and, and we, we need it to stay that way <laughs> never been heard anywhere else and, and so you know, I know a lot of people we, we put our shows out there for everybody to do whatever they want with but we just ask uh, don't take this stuff out and, and use it because this is the property of, of Ghost Village so it's, uh, it has to stay within their borders, right, Jeff? Well, actually, no. I mean, it's not even on Ghost Village. This is just oh, wow. uh, this is something that's that's for the book, and it was something with with Bill and I. But uh, I wanted to share this because I think it's important that we that people hear it right from the the witness's mouth. We thank you. All right, we'll roll that, Matt Costa. On that fateful night, <laughs> my friends and I were out just hunting around, looking for everybody to hang out with, looking for the party or whatever we're doing, and uh, we couldn't find anybody. So we were heading back towards Sherburn, and uh, I'm driving down Farm Street, and I see something ahead on a stone wall. I wasn't really sure if it was a cat or a dog. I knew from a distance that you know, my headlights were hitting this thing, and the eyes were glowing, just like when you see an animal, and, you know, the eyes glow when they right, the headlights hit them. Um, and they were glowing bright orange. I didn't think that was unusual, but as I got closer, I, I got a real good look at what this thing was, and it, like, turned looking more towards me, and I saw these hand-like things grasping onto a rock, and I still didn't believe actually what I was seeing, and th this was within a matter of, say, seven or eight seconds, because I think I was going about 40 miles an hour, and as I got closer, I was like, what the heck is that? And I saw that thing that I had drawn that you saw probably in the paper, that I think that was my drawing, and I was like, holy cow! And uh, my, my friend No, we didn't say anything. I was kind of freaking out at that point. And uh, I tore off from the car because I didn't know what this thing was. And my friend's like, oh, you got to turn around. They give me a hard time. So I drove back. And the, those guys are looking out the window, and they're banging the side of the car, going, here, monster, monster, and, you know, making fun of me pretty much. And right. I, I told them I was really serious, that I really saw something. And, uh, you know, it, it's just a freaky experience. And... They got a big kick out of it, and I, I drove those guys home. And I went home, and uh, I think I told my parents about it, and I did a drawing of it that night. And you know, my, my parents knew that I really saw something, because I, I seemed like, visibly shaken to them. And, and my mom, to this day, 
who doesn't remember anything like what happened in the last five minutes, but she does remember that, you know, back in those days I did really see something. I made this true account and I really drew something out. And um, somehow, I don't know how, people found out about this um, maybe a few days later and before I knew it, people like Lauren Coleman and scientists from all over the country were calling me and interviewing me and it just became this huge thing. And, um, I guess several other people had seen it. One, I don't know if it was the same night, I honestly don't remember. Right. Uh, John Baxter had seen it on Miller's Hill Road, which was probably about a mile and a half from where I saw it. And then some other people, uh, I can't remember, I think one of them was Abby Braddon. Yep, Abby, yep. Yeah, and she said she saw it on Springdale Ave. And, you know, I, I didn't know these guys well. I mean, I I, I knew her, I, and I knew uh, John Dax, but they weren't, like, really close friends. They were a couple of years younger than me. Right. Um, but we got to know each other from this afterwards and kind of hung out a little bit after the whole fact. And the strange coincidence was if you were to take a map and put down a ruler on the map, the points lined up fairly well, like almost a direct line from one spot to the other where they had seen where we had seen it. And I think, I, I'm not positive on this, but it was around the same time of, of night uh, that each one was spotted. All right, so there you have it, direct from Bill Bartlett himself, uh, what he saw that night. And a little bit later on, we'll play another clip provided to us by Jeff, uh, where we will hear him describe what it is that he thinks that the demon might have been. We're going to get into that a little bit later on. We'll talk about some of the theories uh, of what's been out there. And I know that, that Lauren Coleman has done a lot of the research on these different theories and has been able to say some of them, yeah, I don't think that that's the case. And So we'll get into that um, Again, to remind everybody, we have uh, Chris Balzano here with us as well and Keith Johnson, uh, two spooky South Coast regulars with us tonight to talk about the 30th anniversary of the Dover Demon sighting. Uh, I think what we should do now is why don't we take a break. Uh, we'll give uh, Lauren and Jeff a chance to you know, do what they got to do on the other end of the phone line, and, and uh, we will try to get in touch with our field team, Matt Moniz, John Horrigan, out there in Dover. Uh, now, uh, Jeff, Lauren, I'm, I'm sure you guys have been out there numerous times uh, in, in recent years. They must have pretty decent cell phone reception out there, right, being 15 miles south of Boston? I'm not sure. There's a lot of trees and woods there. Okay. It's, it's, more, it's kind of a sleepy, uh, affluent community. Um, right. Really, but, you know, you're right. It, it, cell phone service is, is pretty widespread these days. But, yeah, it's, it's, not, uh, it's not very urban. I'm pretty sure Moniz has Verizon, which is supposed to work everywhere. I think oh, good. Uh, I think the Jersey Devil actually can make calls on out in the Pine Barrens with with oh, very Verizon. Good. So good. All right, we'll we'll try and get in touch with them. We'll be right back, and we'll take your calls as well here on Spooky South Coast. Don't look now, but Spooky South Coast is creeping up behind you right after this. Welcome back into Spooky South Coast. Uh, again, our 30th anniversary program. Not our 30th anniversary. The 30th anniversary of the Dover Demon sighting, which happened uh, 30 years ago today. 
in the town of Dover, Massachusetts, and we have with us tonight uh, an all-star panel to talk about this case. We have the original investigator, Lauren Coleman, cryptozoologist and world-renowned expert on all cryptids. Uh, and you know we'll, we're going to get into it w- with Lauren. We'll talk about some of these other cases uh, in, in the future. We definitely like to have him back to talk all about his book, Mysterious America, which is getting a big 2007 update and re-release. Uh, Mysterious America: The Ultimate Guide to the Nation's Weirdest Wonders, Strangest Spots, and Creepiest Creatures. We've got our copy right here in front of us of the '01 edition. Uh, best-selling author and noted cryptozoologist Lauren Coleman sets out on the ultimate mission to uncover the fun and intriguing phenomena that exist right here in the United States. In Mysterious America, a fun and compulsively readable guidebook to America's most popular local legends, he prepares readers for their own adventure, where to find the unbelievable spectacles on their journey, including the Dover Demon, as we're talking about tonight, Phantom Panthers haunting eastern North America, Bay State Ghosts and Spirits, Mad Gassers in Illinois. We have some Mad Gassers here in the spooky (laughs) South Coast studio, but that's not really worthy of a book. Champ, a famous Lake Champlain monster, the Minnesota Iceman, the Missouri Momo and the infamous Eastern Bigfoot, giant snakes, alligators in the sewers, giant catfish, phantom clowns, many more. He even talks about, of course, the Bridgewater Triangle, a freak, frequent topic here on Spooky South Coast. And we always reference how Lauren Coleman is the one who originally dubbed it that. You can read all about that in Mysterious America as well. And in addition, you know, and I was reading last night, he actually explains the movie uh, Magnolia a little bit. So for those of you who didn't enjoy that film, after you read Lauren's take on it, you'll understand the movie a little bit better, and, and then you can better in, enjoy that film because, you know, for the rest of us, it was, huh? <laughs> that, <laughs> it, it has many levels to it. <laughs> it, it. You know, when I was reading it, I was like, man, I wish I had just read this before I watched it. I would have been so much more interested in it. But Well, with DVDs, it's easy to get. And, and my, it's my wife's favorite movie, so we have it. So I'm looking forward to sitting down and, and re-watching it with a, with a 40 in perspective. Yeah, you'll notice a lot of subliminal messages are in the back. Even on the roof, they put the rope in the... Uh, certain words are written out in in the rope that the guy's using, so it's it's quite good to watch some of those movies two or three times. Now, uh, if you could only explain to me Eyes Wide Shut, because that was another Tom oh, yeah. Cruise movie that I didn't Eyes, know. <laughs> Eyes Wide Shut is uh, is the movie that got Stanley Kubrick killed. <laughs> it's uh, it's the revealing of the Illuminati. Okay, well, I can it's, see that. Oh, there's a lot of lot that's written about that from some of my friends. Yeah, it's a deep movie that really uh, got Stanley Kubrick in all kinds of trouble. And a lot of people seriously think that he was murdered uh, because he'd re- revealed too much in that movie. Okay, now Vanilla Sky. You have Vanilla nothing. Sky, that's all the drugs. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense. That makes more right, sense I, in the I film. just fast forward through the uh, Tom Cruise parts. You know? <laughs> exactly. Well, we'll talk later, Tim, actually. I've got that whole movie figured out. You do Vanilla Sky? Yeah, oh, yeah. What about Vanilla Fudge? <laughs> well, anyway, we're getting can off. I, the... Can I say something about the straight line? Sure. Because I actually did that, and I showed uh, showed Bill that what had happened at the time. I started asking around for maps of the town, and and found this uh, local map, and started putting little points where the sightings were. And all of a sudden, I noticed you did. If you put a ruler on them, they all. I think it was one point two, not one point five, but maybe I'm wrong. But anyway. A mile point two between each of the sites, if you put the ruler and then draw it to a straight line between the three, and I keep it, I extended the line out, and what did it go through? It went 1.2 away over in Needham was where I was living. I was freaked out. <laughs> 
it was it was getting ready to uh, to follow you into your backyard. Well, I just thought it was extremely interesting. Let me put it that way. And I wasn't uh, I wasn't scared. A visit would have been nice from the Dover Demon, but uh, you know. Oh, you know what's one of the interesting things about the Dover Demon case is that it's so renowned today, and, and certainly Lauren has a, a lot to do with that, but. Uh, there wasn't this rash of sightings, right? There were three people, you know, three and a half, we'll say, right? The, um, the witnesses back in oh, 77. Right, right. And Four then, witnesses, right. Right. And then, uh, now there was one interesting um, point that Bill Bartlett made um, to me. He said about a year later, and I know um, he told this to Lauren as well, about a year later in the early spring, he was out parking with a girl, and... Um, very heavily parking. Right. <laughs> Use your imagination. Submarine races, maybe? And uh, he said, um, you know, something did happen, and it was in the vicinity of, you know, of where, they, of where the original sighting was. He said what he described as a naked 10-year-old boy uh, kind of leaped out and freaked the girl out in a very big way and then ran off. Now, he said, you know, the only reason he's drawing a parallel between the two is because you know of what happened to him a year earlier in the in the general area um and what would a naked 10-year-old boy be doing out in April in in Dover Massachusetts um, right. and you know, as i recall there was snow on the ground too yeah so 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 i thought that was interesting and then otherwise we haven't heard a whole lot of uh, about you know about sightings of the demon over the years uh, and, and then, you know, I, I remember in 2006, Brad Steiger did a poll, you know, about what, what you know, some of the various researchers, what he thought were the world's most, uh, you know, top ten list of monsters. And the Dover Demon came in at number ten. Yes. Which is pretty impressive, I think, you know, that, that when you consider it's not it's not like Bigfoot, you know, seen everywhere, you know, for many, 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 many years. It's this, this event that started in Dover back in 1977. And the fact that it is so unique, too. Hi, Jeff. This is Keith. Hey Keith, how you doing? Good. Yeah, it's it's so unique the way it's described. I mean, it's similar to a small gray, but as my wife Sandra describes it, it's more like a small peach, and uh, it, it has very unique aspects. And I remember well what I was doing that night. I was out with my girlfriend back in that night, and uh, you know we were just uh, hanging around. And you you always wonder. If you're you're driving around at night, especially when you're young, you're out with your girlfriend, and you wonder if you go, what you're going to see, if you're going to see something bizarre. It just it just crosses your mind, and and this seems like it's just something that would be right out of your subconscious that that manifests. Do you agree that it's it's something that you're just waiting in case something freaks you out, and then it really happens? I agree that there are situations that lend itself to people. Uh, you know, having, you know, unusual events and certainly parking with a girl in the dark at, at night uh, could be one of those. Um, certainly that ties in with lots of haunted legends that, you know, is it really haunted or is it a way to get girls closer to you in the car? Or is it paranoia <laughs> of, of getting caught? Right, yeah, all those things. So, uh, you know, I, I, I mean, I, I only go by what, what the witness said in this case, and, and you know, that's, that's the testimony of Bill. And um, he, he, which we'll hear a little bit later, uh, Bill never thought of it as paranormal ever. Um, you know, he, he, you know, he. A few things crossed his mind, but I think for the most part, he said this is something that just we haven't cataloged yet. Yeah, it was a very concrete sighting, and I think whenever we we have to be careful about using words like manifestations because the way the general public usually hears that is they made it up. You know, so. that's true. Uh, Lauren, I've got a question. This is Chris Balzano from Massachusetts Paranormal Crossroads. 
Um, are we talking about more than one demon? I mean, based on the uh, the difference in the eye color, um, how did that kind of fit into the way that you looked at it and the way you evaluated it? Did you think that maybe perhaps you had two uh, no. different beings? No, we never thought that we had two. We thought we had probably one that was, uh, you know, different angles of the light, of the, okay. the headlights was catching, catching it differently. Okay. Uh, and, and that really, we ne- it never came into play that we thought there was a host of them around or, or even two of them. Because there was a, enough time in between, and the distance was not that far. And the other thing that uh, really was a common denominator was all of these sightings were extremely close to water sources, as if the, this thing was moving around via the water. Now, based with with the the water aspect of it, and the, the spindly uh, fingers, um, the the shark skin, the, the the fact that the feet were molded on rock. Um, does it seem amphibian to you? Is the... I, I'm not sure. It wasn't reptilian, that, that's for sure, because okay. there wasn't you know, that kind of... But uh, I have a, a friend of mine, the researcher Mark A. Hall, who's done quite a bit on mer-beings, always thought mm-hmm. that this may have been related to the mer-being report. So, you know, I, I'm still... I mean, I, I as I was talking to Jeff the other day, I'm not afraid to say I don't know. I really don't know what this thing is, but I certainly know a lot of things that it wasn't. If anyone has access to uh, Google Earth, which is a, a wonderful program, um, you know you can you can look at the area we're talking about, which I'm actually doing as we're speaking, and there are certainly various ponds all around. But you know this is typical, you know, south of Boston, wooded you know, rural area with with some very nice manicured properties and and things like that. So, uh, you know, what it could be, as Lauren said, we don't know. Not even the witnesses knew. And what's also interesting about that area is he was driving down the road, and the way I recall it is if you're going down the road the way he was, the wall was on the left. And if you go directly across from the wall into the woods there, there's a big rock that's quite large. I'd say it's maybe a story and a half tall. And that locally, in the colonial times, in the 1600s, was called the Puka Rock. And it was spelled differently, P-U-K-A or P-O-O-K-A. But it really related back to what we know about the Puka from Ireland and Scotland, which all of us researchers know is a, a, a demon-like creature, a you know, it could be a black dog to some people, could be something else. And uh, near Farm Street, it was actually along Farm Street, there's also a report of a headless horseman being sighted. So that whole general area where Bartlett actually saw this creature has a, a history of haunting, you know, sighting kind of information. There was also supposed to be a buried gold treasure near there. So it's kind of... As far as a focused spot of abnorm of weirdness, it's certainly right there on Farm Street. And uh, correct me and if I'm wrong. Maybe we have two researchers that have disappeared into a void now. <laughs> <laughs> they might have. I think they're on the line, but we'll, okay. we'll try to get with them. I was going to say, in that same area, I think uh, you had written that there was also a man who had claimed to have met the devil on the road as well. Right. And there's also right around the corner was uh, the, the sighting, the UFO sighting that... Uh, Bartlett was talking about hadn't happened that night. It had been a few previous months before, but there had been a UFO scene in that area, too. 
Well, Chris, you had mentioned the possibility of two strange creatures possibly being in Dover. <laughs> we have two strange creatures in Dover tonight. Let's see if we can bring them up on the phones. All right, guys. Oh. <laughs> this is the way it's going. This is the way it's going to be, I guess. Uh, we'll, we'll see if they can check back in with us. Uh, and but, but now, Lauren. Uh, That's pretty bizarre, I must say. It is. I mean, it's we. Sort we of ha- like the Mothman, right? We, we had them and they were gone. And uh, I'm, I'm just hoping it's because they saw something and they're chasing it down and not because they said, hey, you know what? I'm tired of waiting. And then they hung up the phone. <laughs> but uh, it, it's interesting, though, that, you know, you say that this isn't a, a hotspot. This Dover area is a hotspot of possible activity. I mean, we see the same thing here in the Bridgewater Triangle. Uh, is, is it possible that there's all these little ripples beyond just, you know, the Triangle area, the Dover area, that this is just something that's unique to maybe the Northeast, maybe to New England in general? No, no, you can go into any, I mean, I've been to every state except Alaska. Uh, there's these little spots of, of concentrated weirdness, and mm-hmm. you know, that's why I wrote in the Mysterious America the whole chapter on devil names and on you know on 40 in places because people tend to either the native peoples or the early settlers settlers would notice the, something more sinister something a little off and give it strange names but i i do think that uh, as i was talking once again to jeff we were having a conversation about do you think that there are you know if you had a researcher any place you could find all of the strange things and and call it, uh, you know, the, uh, I don't know, the Cambridge Triangle or something mm-hmm. like that. And I don't really think it works that way. I do think it's the other way around. Oftentimes you'll notice these spots because there's so many reports uh, coming from them, and then you're drawn to investigate further there and find there's a deeper history. Why don't we try connecting with, with Matt Moniz and John Horrigan uh, out in Dover. Guys, are you with us now? Yep. Hi. Can you hear us, Matt? I'm in a very bad I'm going to try and call into you guys. Okay. All right. As long as you can hear me now, all we, right? We can right? hear you very well right now. We can hear you, Matt. All right. Uh, first off, Mr. Coleman, pleasure to actually have a chance to speak to you. I've read your book years ago, and uh, they are still the staples of the uh, trade. Thank you. It's nice to talk to you. I'm glad we got you. All right. Um, I, I was listening to a little bit about what you guys were talking about, the water and stuff. I... Uh, Morgan and I are standing at the exact spot that Mr. Bartlett had his encounter. Now, uh, this is something I just noticed. Now, I worked many years in environmental services and stuff, and so I'm familiar with environmental things, and one of them is the nature of animals. This particular spot is on the top of a hill, right next to this small brook and gully that leads down to, to the next location, which I believe is Miller's Hill Road. This same brook, as we've been tracking all the way through, ends up at last location at Springdale. Where this is. Matt, I think we're losing you. Uh, uh, I know. Uh, it's perception. There's a uh, poor. So, you know, we can't hear but, you. Yeah, I think we're going to have to. He's uh, saying it's on a hill. That it, it's basically there's an incline there, and there's a hill. And I don't know how that would have affected things. But. No, he said that there was a hill, but then there was a, a stream right there. The stream goes down to the next location, then down to the next location. So I think he was trying to suggest the, the possibility that this, this creature was following the water? Yes. Yeah, like Chris suggested, it may have been aquatic or something. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, well, it's kind of a culvert there, too, as I understand. Yeah, and that's when Abby, uh, Abby was one of the first 
witnesses to say that she thought that this creature had been following the water. And then we got all the maps out and saw some of, you know, definitely the same thing that these gentlemen are seeing. I hope they're, but I think it, I think the reception out there, it's just a void. Yeah. So. And, and, you know, we've said before, when they do have these hot spots of, of activity, they often, you know, mess with the radio waves, mess with the, the cell phone reception. So that, that could be, but then again, you know, being in the woods doesn't help either. <laughs> Right, right, right. All right. Matt, well, I mean, in the Bridgewater Triangle, there are definitely some EM spots because you've got so many power lines there, too. Oh, they're, they're calling back. We'll see if maybe they have a better signal. We'll give them one more try, and then... All right, Matt, can you have a better signal now, or...? All right, is that a little bit better for you? Yes, perfect. It means I've got to stand a little closer to the road. Okay. Just don't watch out for cars. That's what I'm trying to do. Okay. Uh, uh, if you can hear me, the location, like I said, where uh, Mr. Bartlett saw... The encounter first at about 10:30. I'm standing at the exact same spot. The second occurrence occurred. The same brook also. All right, you, you can't stand in the same out. spot, Matt. <laughs> All right, we'll 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 just we'll get back to you, Matt. Just hopefully he can get to uh, to a better spot, and, and he doesn't have to call us from the exact location of where it happened, uh, and then we can we we can hear him a little better. Uh, that that's the typical researcher though in in Matt Moniz, Lauren, is that he he insists on standing on that exact spot for you know credibility purposes and whether it has good reception or not. That, well, I, I admire him for that definitely, <laughs> and that I mean yeah, it's a unique spot to be at. It's it's quite uh, quite a compelling place, I think. Uh, now, but he was suggesting, as, as we said before, the possibility. Uh, I'm assuming this is what he meant is that the creature is following the water, um, in in the. In, the investigations that was done in the days after, were there uh, any attempts to go out along this creek and, and look for prints, look for any kind of dander, any kind of droppings or anything? Well, we, we did as much as that as we could. I mean, it, for instance, uh, near the third sighting, a, a culvert is right there, and so we could see and we looked all around and we, you know, got in a widening. We made measurements, we took photos, you know, we did all of the the things. But it gets very, it's not really productive to go too deeply into the woods because there wasn't anything there but underbrush so we weren't finding anything but uh, we never did the you know walking down the creek because it just was impossible terrain i mean everybody thinks that massachusetts is just all bedroom communities but this thing this whole area of dover really is is more pastoral and uh, you know farmland and all kinds of stuff so they don't really care what happens along the stone walls, along the rivers, and it does get, I mean, all along the creeks, it get, does get very wild and and almost pristine because of all of the money there, they actually want to keep it as close to wilderness-like as possible. And and uh, it, it's strange, though, that for, for that type of terrain to be maneuvered by some of the, and we'll get into the second hour, some of these suggestions that have been made about what this creature could have been. But if that terrain is that rough and tumble and that hard to get around, there's very select few creatures that we know about that could actually uh, maneuver in such a manner as was described by some of these witnesses, wouldn't you think? Oh, definitely. And, I mean, we can, after the, the top of the hour, we can go through the candidates one by one, and I'll tell you a little bit about what people have said and what I've found out. But uh, certainly... Animals aren't going to move around that easily. They're sort of domesticated animals. This seemed to have been something else. And I'm glad these guys are out there and maybe they're walking around. Maybe they'll actually try to walk from Farm Street down to Springdale Ave via the 
the creek, and you know, maybe we'll talk to him in three or four days. <laughs> <laughs> well, if it's if it's one thing about Moniz and John Horrigan is uh, they're smart enough to have Moniz do all the the calling and John Horrigan doing all the maneuvering. Okay. <laughs> so he'll make sure that they get back safely. Oh, good, good. And and while we have, we just have just a couple of minutes before we go to the top of the hour news, and then we'll be back as you said in the second hour to go through some of these possibilities. But you will be speaking at the upcoming Mass Monster Mash conference uh, this this October, right, Lon? Yeah, yes, John and I talked about that, and I'll be glad to be down there. It'll be quite exciting to uh, talk to people face to face about the good old Dover Demon. And you're going to talk about a lot of the other aspects of, of Massachusetts, some of the, the cryptids that have been spotted in this area, the Bridgewater Triangle, things, you know, all, all the different things you cover in Mysterious America? I'm not sure. John was mostly wanting me to give a, a, a PowerPoint presentation just on the Dover Demon, but I, I'll talk to him a little bit more and maybe I'll expand it to see, you know, talk, take in some of the Bridgewater Triangle material too. Because it's just becoming, uh, hopefully this show is part of it, and Chris's site, and Chris Pittman's site, and the work Jeff's done. I mean, hopefully we're all bringing some, some more attention to that area, and, and as more qualified researchers are propping up all over the place, you know, maybe they'll focus on this and we can get to some of these answers. Yeah, and, and a spooky coincidence of life uh, following art or something, my, my youngest son is uh, going to go to Wheaton and Norton next year, so I'll have, <laughs> have a kid in the Bridgewater Triangle. <laughs> well, uh, while he's there, we'll have to take him, uh, take him out for some spicy chicken wings right around the, uh, the Norton campus. I don't, I don't know if he's into spicy food, but... Oh, definitely is. They have the, the hottest wings in Massachusetts. I don't, I don't know if it's paranormal, but they certainly <laughs> taste that way when you first bite into them. Oh, okay. I'll let him know that. Okay. Well, we are coming up on the CBS News again in the second hour. We'll talk more about the Dover Demon here on the 30th anniversary. We'll also have that big announcement about the Mass Monster Mash and about the Mass Mystery Tour as well. We'll try to check in more with our field team again. Maybe we can get them to like a, a Hojo's or something. They can use a payphone to call in. And uh, we'll take your calls as well. If you have anything you'd like to talk about with Lauren Coleman regarding the Dover Demon, uh, maybe you have some questions in general for our, our panel of guests, you can call in 508-996-0500, 508-291-0500. Lots more coming up in the second hour, and uh, we'll be right back with Lauren Coleman, Jeff Belanger, Chris Balzano, Keith Johnson, John Horrigan, Matt Moniz, Matt Costa, and I guess I might as well come back to you. We'll be back right here on Spooky South Coast. The following takes place between 11 p.m. and 12 a.m. Hold your breath. This is usually the part when people start screaming. Turn on all your lights, lock the doors, and pull down the shades. Spooky South Coast is back. Welcome back to our number two of Spooky South Coast on our 30th anniversary 
Dover Demon episode. I mean, just the first hour, it flew by talking about this case. Uh, just some of the uh, history of it with Lauren Coleman, the cryptozoologist and the original investigator into the Dover Demon case, uh, sharing with us some of the initial reports that came out of Dover that fateful 25-and-a-half-hour period uh, back in April of 1977. We also have Jeff Belanger of ghostvillage.com, an author of such books as The World's Most Haunted Places, Ghosts of War, and Ghosts, uh, I'm sorry, Our Haunted Lives, which is his excellent presentation that he did with the Cape and Island Paranormal Research Society at one of their recent open meetings. And he's out on the lecture circuit now with that. Uh, Chris, I know that the two of you are appearing uh, very soon at a, at a lecture coming up uh, May 5th, I believe. Uh, yep, May 5th. Where is that? Uh, that is in uh, Haverhill, Massachusetts. It is, correct me if I'm wrong, Jeff. Hello, by the way. We'll, we'll put him up there. Sorry. I just okay. got him back on the phone. All so. right. I'm um, totally going to heckle you at this thing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you did actually last year, I think. So, uh, um, <laughs> now it is the Eastern Massachusetts Paranormal Conference. That's right. It's at the Buttonwoods Mansion in uh, Haverhill. Right, and it's, uh, is this the contact, right? Or is this Revelations? This is called Revelations. Revel- Even Ron yesterday couldn't get it straight, so this is Revelations. <laughs> right. So uh, if you want to get, I'm sure you have links on your website, Jeff and Chris. On, yep, and yep. Uh, Tom D'Agostino, another Spooky South Coast uh, alum, will be speaking as well, as well as uh, uh, Ron and Maureen from the New England Ghost Project. Excellent. So uh, you can go to masscrossroads.com or ghostvillage.com for more information. And, and those are sites you should be going to every day because there's constantly you know, updated information. It's a chance to find out more about some of these cases that we're talking about. Uh, but tonight, if you want to get more information about tonight's case, you definitely want to go to You can go to laurencoleman.com. You can go to cryptomundo.com. And we have some information up on the blog at spookysouthcoast.com uh, as well so you can follow along with what we're talking about. Uh, and we're going to talk with Lauren about some of the possibilities that have been uh, suggested and in some cases eliminated uh, in talking about the Dover Demon. But right now, we think we can check in with our field team of Matt Moniz and John Horrigan uh, right now. And, and Keith Johnson, of course, keeping Matt Moniz's seat warm for him while he's out in Dover. It's, at least we picked a nice night to send him out this time instead of like last time in the Bridgewater Triangle. Yeah, oh, definitely yeah. much better weather. Tonight. All right, Matt, can you hear us this time? Yes, can you guys hear me? We this can time? hear you. Loud and clear. All right, perfect. All right, now you were saying that you were following along that the the, the uh, you saw the hillside and it seemed like the the brook was going downhill and you believe that this creature was following along the water line and you said yes. other other animals are out there doing the same tonight. Yes, uh, we John Horgan and I saw three deer following the same pathway while while we were there. It, it's a an obvious route that is wide enough for animals. You know, deer are fairly large animals to traverse this uh, this location. It makes sense because it's a path of least resistance. Uh, most access ways that these people are talking about that they see this thing, it came up from the, this uh, brookside edge and retreated back to it. So it seems like this thing was using this waterway as a means of uh, traversing the terrain. Now, just speculating into what that might mean, Matt, I'm assuming that if you're suggesting that it followed along this water line just as these animals are doing, you're suggesting that this was a terrestrial creature, some sort of animal, an, an unknown or un, unfamiliar creature, uh, and not some of these other strange explanations. Um, if it, I'm saying if it was a terrestrial type of creature or something that was uh, flesh and blood, so to speak, mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's following uh, a route that most 
animals would follow. But the interesting uh, if thing... If you try to avoid, you know, human contact for the most part, yes. Yeah, the interesting thing, though, that it was not just a uh, uh, an animalistic creature, it was very humanoid. Humanoid most, and bipedal. Yeah, yeah, the most disturbing thing about it was that it did resemble more or less a human being. It wasn't basically bipedal, a humanoid shape, and... Uh, eyes located where they were supposed to be on a human, uh, you know, lacking other facial features, but uh, disturbingly human with the, you know, arms and legs and bas- basically the right position, no elongated, mm-hmm. you know, enlarged head and everything like that. It, it's just something that should not have been. I think that's the feeling that uh, our friends got when they were, they were that age, that it's just something that should not have been there but was. They did see it. I would uh, concur that 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 would be something that would not be a part of the norm. Right. Now, was, no, sorry, go ahead, Matt. I was going to say, up at the top of the hill where uh, Bartlett had his encounter, very dark, very foreboding woods. Uh, this thing was on the left-hand side as he was heading northbound. This thing would have crossed over and down into the river edge, and that next river crossing would have been where Baxter had his encounter. And then after Baxter's encounter, where he chased it back down into the river gully, it would have came out to where um, Brabham had her encounter with Cater uh, uh, on uh, Springdale Road. That's where I'm currently standing right now. And I'm looking up at all uh, the other two locations. And I'm looking at the river that comes down. I was like, this makes sense to me. Uh, and, Lauren, is that some of the similar type of uh, approach you took to, uh, you know, researching into some of these animals that it could have possibly been? Yes, that's exactly. Are they? Are you guys near the culvert? Uh, we're actually, I, we just came back up to the corner of Farm and uh, Springdale. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, oh, because this is where the best reception, phone reception I could find is. <laughs> Right. Well, we, we all appreciate that. <laughs> Not a problem. And, and uh, now, Lauren, with some of these possibilities that, that we're going to talk about here, uh, but it's interesting, Before I know we're going to get into a lot of these different possibilities, and I, I don't want to make this jump uh, and leap in logic uh, right at the top of what we're going to talk about here, but it is interesting that in Mysterious America, uh, when you are uh, recounting, um, I'm sorry, Walt, uh, Walt Webb's recount, account of the report that you published in the book, Mysterious America, he said that you were one of the first to note the resemblance between the Dover entity and the famous Kelly, Kentucky Little Men incident of 1955. And it's interesting that Keith brings up the idea... I was talking about that with John Horrigan earlier today. It, it Keith brings up the, the humanoid aspect of it, and you actually, uh, or, or Walt actually talked to Ted Blecker, co-chairman of MUFON's Humanoid Study Group. And what was the determination made uh, of the similarities between these humanoid creatures and the Dover Demon? Well, I, I think one of the main reasons that we looked into that was here you had a, a case that seemed to stand out, the Kelly creatures. There weren't anything that anybody had ever seen like that again, uh, really. Uh, and it had that, you know, that thin sort of look to it, the head that seemed to be larger, the, the long, spindly sort of uh, legs and arms. But the thing that was much different that really stood out for us also was the huge ears on the Kelly creatures. 
and you can certainly understand from all of the descriptions of the Dover Demon, nobody saw any of those ears. So we knew we weren't talking about exactly the same kind of creature, but what drew us to look into that and what drew me to suggest that people look into that a little deeper was that it was so abnormal and so unique. But uh, most of the MUFON people and the Afro people really uh, considered it a, a dead end to, to look any further. And Jeff, in, in your discussions w- with Bill Bartlett uh, recently, and the you know the proliferation of the, of the Greys and these different uh, alien races that we believe are visiting this planet, or some believe are visiting this planet, did he discuss that possibility at all with you uh, in your recent conversation with him? Yeah, actually, you know, I, I don't know when you planned on playing the clip, well, but I was, we're, we're gonna. Set yeah, up that, I mean, <laughs> maybe it would be better to comment after we hear okay. what he says. That well, would be. Uh, We'll, we'll play Bill's uh, belief of what it is. Matt, we'll keep you on the line so you can hear it as well. Well, you know, for me, I'm, I'm a very serious fine arts painter, and um, I, I take my, my job really seriously, and I work really hard at being the best I can be, and I try to obtain these goals that I've set for myself. And um, it, it actually annoys me a little bit because uh, I want my fame to be through my art, yeah. not through something that I saw within a seven-second period of time in 
uh, you know, the influence of the media at that time. You know, uh, certainly aliens were hot in 1977, and in the media, and in the news, and in the movies, and and that's what you know makes people you know leap that way. And, and as Lauren said, when he first did the investigation, he brought in UFO people who ruled that out right away. So um, you know, pretty interesting, uh, just his perspective on it. And one of the things that that you find happens with with cases where someone sees something pretty profound at some point in their life, especially when a number of years pass. Uh, the, there's kind of two two schools that I've found people in. One is, you know, now that I've had years to think about it, I'm just not so sure anymore. You know, they, there's that school of they question themselves or and their own senses. And then there's the Bill Bartlett school, you know. Um, no, that's what I saw. End of discussion. I, I kind of wish I didn't see it. I'd just like to be a, a regular fine arts painter who, you know, is, is known for that and not for this, you know, this weird event from 1977. But, uh, that's how it is. Now, uh, Lauren, one of the witnesses, John Baxter, he did have an, an interest in science fiction at the time, correct? Oh, just extremely mild. I think it was one of those things where, you know, we needed to mention because we were going to reveal everything uh, because uh, you know that we found out because we w- didn't want to be undermined later by anybody that was trying to debunk it by saying, oh, this guy wrote science fiction stories. You know, for some of his high school classes, Somebody else might write a historical essay, and Baxter would write science fiction once in a while. But as he admitted uh, right away, you know, this wasn't a science fiction story that he had created. It wasn't one that really overlapped with anything that he'd done in school, and and that was kind of irrelevant. Well, also in the interest of full disclosure, uh, we should mention that uh, it's reported in the book and and in your investigation that uh, Bartlett had... Uh, indicated that he had partaken in some uh, recreational uh, smoking. He's, yeah, he smoked marijuana yeah. a little bit, a toke or two, an hour before the sighting. Uh, but as I said in the book, marijuana is not no, you know, in those small quantities and in the poor, poor uh, kinds that they were able to obtain, <laughs> it doesn't cause hallucinations. It, he wasn't hallucinating. He was seeing something very real and very three-dimensional from all his descriptions and all of the descriptions that uh, match with the other people. But yeah, we, we disclosed that right away and even the police uh, knew about it and they sort of joked about it and stuff like that. Uh, and it wasn't, it was never a issue with this case. I can't imagine, even with the high quality of weed they must get in an affluent community like Dover, that it would start uh, lending itself to. Well, I think he got it over in Sherburn. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> so that it, uh, what else do you know, Lauren? <laughs> <laughs> Where can he get some now, Lauren? Yeah. <laughs> Jeff, Jeff sounds like uh, we're keeping him up. He could use a little uh, <laughs> relaxation. Have some tea. All right. <laughs> I think uh, that's one of the things that keeps the case alive, or at least of interest, once you initially get into it, is the fact that um, Lauren and, and uh, Walt Webb were just so uh, precise and so mm-hmm. all-encompassing in what they did, and they disclosed the, the drug use. They disclosed the one person, I think, who discredited um, Bill Bartlett, or who said it might have been one of the other people who, who said he, that he wasn't a good student, was a troublemaker. Um, right. They mentioned get, get, all of that. And, and I won't give the answer, but let me ask the question. What subject do you think that teacher taught Bartlett? Science? No. Math, then. No. Oh. Hmm. You were thinking the opposite. Yeah, of, yeah, I was thinking the I was thinking the exact uh, opposite. No, it, it's an gym. It's 
No, it's a subject that Bartlett has become Bart, very famous Bartlett, in. Right? It and, was the art uh, teacher. and the teacher was jealous that he had a student that could do better than him. Uh, <laughs> okay, all right. Well, I think Chris was kind but of thinking the opposite. That's not disclosed in the book, right? Right. But I mean, I think that's that's one of the things that makes it, you know, the fact that the, the speed in which it was um, it was able to be handled, the how many people were brought in, professionals right. who were brought in. I think that's one of the things that um, when people get into the case, um, it stays with them for so long because there are just so many things that when something pops up in their head, Lauren, you do an excellent job of explaining why it can't be that, mm-hmm. and so that builds to some degree the intrigue of it and the interest of it. It's, it's, inter- it's interesting too that. Uh, John Baxter was the only one of the witnesses that had any opportunity to at least attempt to communicate with this creature, although he did not know what it was at the time. He thought it was a friend of his, but uh, the creature was either unwilling or unable to communicate with him on his level, whatever, and uh, just kind of hightailed it into the woods after that, right? Exactly, and he certainly wasn't MG, so he at least tried to establish if this was a human. Which, you know, uh, I mean, it didn't seem to be a responsive human if it was a human. Was there ever any uh, explore, uh, exploration of why it happened at this time? Why, you know, this one, you know, these, these three instances uh, at that time, at that year, anything like that? And, and did that kind of lead you in the direction of any potential answers or using both traditional and non-traditional uh, well, ideas? Well, well, you know, it, it's kind of weird, but down, I mean... Certainly, you have John Keel's theories that uh, you know any time after the 20th of month during certain specific months, such and April's one of them, that you have a more uh, almost opening of windows and different things like that, which you know I really in some ways reject ufologically, but in terms of looking at some of the material that's coming out about April, yeah. Uh, uh, and some of the other work that I do with uh, suicides and youth and mm-hmm. and uh, school shootings, we certainly are knowing that this Patriots Day week uh, can be one really much more across the country than here, which is full of you know Oklahoma City and Waco and uh, Virginia Tech and Columbine and things that uh, really are pretty sinister, pretty evil. And so uh, that certainly has not, been lost on me since 1977. You should also, um, in some of the work that um, I was doing on Freetown and now in the, in the Bridgewater Triangle book, um, it also coincides with kind of a build-up to the um, to one of the most important satanic holidays as well. So yeah, I, 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 I'm not attaching you to that or anything like that. I'm just no, saying no, that. no. I, I understand. What May first? Uh, yep. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the 30th and the and the first, and uh, we have found. Uh, traces of animal sacrifice on our investigations around that time of year, around the time of uh, Walpurgis Knot and Beltane, uh, which, you know, no no uh, criticism of the religions themselves, but some people obviously right. take it a bit right. too far and mm-hmm. will do these things. And, and wasn't there a pretty horrific murder in Freetown? Oh, yes. The, the, yeah. the woman who was put up against the tree and all that, yeah. Yeah, and that... Um, and then the, the the highway killings, especially the the bodies began disappearing all during this time. It's funny, I didn't get uh, an email from Alan this week because usually when something happens during these times, he shoots me an email. Says, you know, I know you're watching the news. This this kind of stuff is going on. There's a few that correlate during the year, and and one of them is definitely this section of of April. 
Yeah. It's funny too, Lauren. Uh, if we hadn't been talking uh, tonight about the Dover Demon and observance of the anniversary, uh, it would be strange because we would it would be the good time to talk to you about what happened uh, earlier this week at at uh, Virginia Tech and also some of the information you sent us about uh, suicides taking place in the Bridgewater Triangle recently as well. Right. Right at the hospital. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've actually most of my I've I've been contacted about fifteen to twenty times. A day for the last week because of my other book, The Copycat Effect. Yeah. Which, and I actually predicted the Virginia Tech shooting, so down to this week. And I did that last September 18th, so it's been a chilling week. As well as with the uh, the one that happened on the reservation as well, right? Yeah, I did that yeah. one the year before, yeah. yeah. And, and again, I mean, we, we can definitely talk about this sometime in the future because it's, you know, as being another area where you're very knowledgeable and done and done a great amount of research and i think it's something that would really benefit the audience to to know more about this i mean chris's book dark woods forthcoming is going to you know explain a lot of this to people in this area that just this stuff goes on and it kind of escapes our general everyday sensibilities until something as tragic as what happened last week takes place i mean i really feel the copycat effect is something that that should be assigned reading to high school students i'm really a huge uh, of all your 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 books, I love that one the most, and I love the the cryptozoological books. But that copycat effect just really um, hit me on the side of the head, actually. Right. Well, I mean, one of the things that Walt Webb said in his report, which I did appreciate, is that because of my work with kids, uh, you know, really high school kids at the time, I had this rapport with these teenagers who had seen this, and I really understood, uh, you know, that. There was different ways to talk to them than most adults had ever talked to teenagers in some investigations before. And as I say about Baxter, for instance, who a lot of people in the media began to feel that he was uh, almost exaggerating his his story, and then he became unbelievable. What I really interpreted that was going on with him is because as investigators we're so hard on the witnesses, we want to make sure that you know we have them tell the story five times we see if there's any inconsistencies that this young man felt that people were not believing him so much so that he began to become more dramatic and almost more flamboyant in the way he was telling it so that he would look to be more credible when in fact it really backfired and uh, after a while he became more comfortable and calmed down again but uh, it was interesting just to to have that background in child welfare and psychiatric social work and anthropology all working in favor when I was investigating the Dover Demon. But it is amazing to me that it's lived on for so long. Good evening. You're on Spooky South Coast. How you doing? Hi. How you doing, guys? Uh, all right. How are you? I made Matt hang out. That's terrible. That's okay. I'm great. That was a great show. Thank you. Um. It's really interesting to hear about this uh, Dover Demon. I've never really uh, looked into it all that much, but um, I don't know. It, 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 the name Demon, it, it doesn't look like a demon to me. It looks like some weird, almost like the idea that they said somebody had their poor, strange kid locked up in the house or like an alien. Yeah, I, I definitely think... a true cryptid, uh, although it kind of brings up a question in my mind, you know, how I am, guys. <laughs> and uh, Keith's in the studio. Does he think that a demon would be able to have a corporeal body like that? I, I don't think it would be something outright demonic because I get the impression it was rather lost and pathetic. I mean, it's something that seemed to 
to need helpers. It, it was a lost, lonely creature. That's what it appeared like. And there's always, you know, there's a possibility that it was transdimensional, but I don't think it was out to actually wreak havoc or anything because the spaceship it, left left it behind and it was lost. Poor little guy. <laughs> well, well, something like that, or else. I remember we had uh, some bizarre weather that year in 1977. We had a series of ice storms in New England, and then, of course, only a few weeks after the sighting, May 9th in 1977, we had this freak snowstorm, and branches were coming down, trees were toppling because leaves were out on the trees in the snowstorm, and and then it uh, defrosted within uh, another day. So. Uh, I don't know. I, I think it was just something that, that crossed the line, whether it was transdimensional or because uh, of the weather conditions, and, and then it went back to where it came from. That's interesting, too. All right, well, we're going to talk about some more possibilities of what it could be in just a few minutes. We, we're up against it. We have to take our last break, and when we come back, we will talk about some of the other possibilities, the other potential explanations, what ones Lauren has been able to discount over the years, and uh, we'll be back with more of the Dover Demon here on Spooky South Coast. Certified Boppers. Beaming from the studios of AM 1420 WBSM into the night and beyond. Here's more of Spooky South Coast. Down in the valley on the foggy hill rocks with a crazy little demon blowing his top. Fire in his eyes and smoke from his head. You gotta be real cool to hear the words he said. He did the patron saint of Spooky South Coast, Screaming Jay Hawkins. We have to keep playing his music to support his 86 kids now that he's no longer with us. All right, uh, so, so uh, Lauren Coleman, the cryptozoologist and original investigator of the Dover Demon case, have we got a call for you. Okay. During the break, uh, we got an interesting call come in here to the Spooky Studio, so we'll... We'll put that on the air. I think uh, this this one should be interesting. All right. Good evening. You're on Spooky South Coast. How are you doing? Hi. Yes. Um, uh, well, uh, back in uh, seven there, um, uh, we were uh, digging a foundation over there on Cross Street, right across the river there, uh, Charles River from uh, Walker School. And uh seems though a couple of days later they accused me of... Uh, of uh, through the process of digging the foundation, letting this uh, Dover Devil—that's what we called him—and and at that time, the Dover Devil—they accused me of letting him loose in, in the process of digging the foundation. Um, now, who accused you? Was it? Oh, no, just just people around town. Like pulling your leg, or, or... yeah, yeah, right, yeah. Oh, um, and but. Uh, uh, this was over. This was over on uh, uh, the other side of town, um, by the Walker School. And uh, what year was this? Seventy-seven. Seventy-seven. Yep. Okay. In April, we were digging the foundation there, and it was uh, uh, actually the same day. And that's why people, uh, you know, in, in Dover, some of the locals there. But no, had anybody seen it around your place, or they were just they were just trying to blame you? Uh, uh, nobody saw it that I know of. Uh, um, you know, it was just just because, you know, I guess it hit the newspaper or whatever. And, well, what, uh, what's your personal opinion, sir? Do you do you believe that you may have uh, upset something that may have uh, freed this thing, or? Well, I guess there's a whole bunch of different uh, uh, 
schools of thought. Number one, dimensional, like you said, and then also there was a discussion around town as well that uh, you know it could be uh, you know somebody's uh, uh, deformed or uh, you know child that got loose or uh, and and then again in another sense you had the Medfield Hospital out there. Where they had, um, you know, I don't know the caliber of the, the type of people they had there, but it was, you know, kind of like a, a house for the mentally insane. I don't know if they had any other kind of uh, deformities or abnormalities. Deformities and stuff. Yeah, exactly. One, one question I have, sir, is when you were digging this foundation, did you actually upset the natural environment at all, uh, taking down trees or? Or maybe, you know. No, we, we, we stumbled upon uh, a dump, actually, and, uh, an old dump you know, that had uh, pottery and stuff uh, at the bottom of it. Uh, different pieces of china going back to, uh, oh, geez, I don't know, turn of the century or before even, because uh, all that area was uh, all grazing land, and actually, the where our house was built used to be. Uh, grazing land for the old Walker farm. I mean, I mean, we're, we're, you know, we're kidding around. We're facetiously, uh, you know, giving credence to the possibility that you you let the Dover demon loose. But uh, it is possible, though, that if there was some sort of upset to the to the environment, that if there was a creature that hadn't been brought out into the open, that it might come out into the open lawn, wouldn't, wouldn't you think? Like, you know, as any time you do construction in a wooded area, it flushes out some of the wildlife that, that's in that area. Right. Well, and certainly, and, if they and we're right, we're right on the river as well there. Uh, yeah, I know. I lived right across from you. Yeah. <laughs> so I was, I was living at the Walker School. So yeah, you, you can blame him for all the noise that was <laughs> happening while you're trying to sleep. Oh no, no, no. Uh, there was uh, we used to go canoeing down there, and uh, some of some of your students used to uh, plant uh, some rare and exotic plants down on the river. <laughs> <laughs> so you do know, Lauren, where we can get some pretty cheap. Well, I, since, since uh, the kids I were, think they, I think they called them marriage goals or something. Yeah. Well, the ki- the 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 ages of the kids were only up to twelve years old, so I don't think they would have doing yeah, that. Can't blame them. Oh, oh, of course. Okay, must have been the instructors then. All right, <laughs> All right so we, okay. We th- we thank you for checking in. Okay, dog. All right, have a good night. Sorry, Lauren. You know we got to present all of you sides, I guess. Uh, yeah, that's right, right. And uh, I really, I mean, it was perhaps that gentleman called it the Dover Devil, but uh, but the news started coming out because I coined the Dover mm-hmm. Demon on uh, May 14th, and then in the Boston Globe on May 15th, it uh, all came out as the Dover Demon. Actually, you should look in the Boston Globe over the weekend because they are supposed to uh, do a special. On the Dover Demon, an update. Do you you remember which writer uh, worked on that piece? Uh, No, you know, so many call me, I don't write their names down anymore. (laughs) There there are a few, there's a handful of writers uh, at the Globe, being, you know, a newspaper writer myself, I've gotten a chance to communicate with some of them, and they do keep up to date on a lot of these cases, and, and they are always willing to uh, to re-examine these cases, and the editors there are give them a lot of leeway in presenting different um, story ideas against stuff that other mainstream news sources might stay away from. Yeah, I was actually uh, amazed because uh, the Globe did an article last fall on the Dover Demon, and for them to do another one 
you know, it was kind of remarkable that they really would be tied into the anniversary so well. Yeah, it's it's interesting how these names come up too, because even where I live in Warwick, Rhode Island, uh, we have some cryptoids from uh, alleged cryptoids from the '70s up until the present time. We have the uh, Mothman sighting of Appenog. We have a, a sea creature that's known as Okie Pokey around Oakland Beach. Uh, we have the Apex Ape from 1975 in the area of where Apex used to be. A uh, number of simian sightings that were very similar to the uh, Dover Demon, but more, much more disturbing and uh, mm -hmm. just interesting. And I really don't think we can overlook that in terms of its staying power because I've done you know several radio interviews with people from you know the South and the Midwest and, and the West Coast. Um, who know absolutely nothing of the case uh, because they might be more into um, the ghost side of the paranormal. And as soon as I mention Dover Demon, they're, they're all over it. They don't want to talk about anything else, and I have to present it, and then they go, oh, oh I didn't know it was about that. <laughs> yeah. So I think there definitely is something about the actual name itself that, that draws people in and just kind of... That's yeah. very catchy. Warren, Warren's good at that. <laughs> yeah. Um, before we go, do you want to talk about the candidate? Yes, uh, I was just going to say, now, why don't we preface this, too, with saying... Uh, uh, and I, something I read on Crypto Mundo, 1977, there was a, a lot of different sightings of, of different supposed cryptids, right? Right. And actually, in the March issue of TAPS, Para, Para Magazine, mm -hmm. I, I list uh, the top ten, and I don't have that even in front of me now. But, you know, there were lots of Black Panther reports. There were Bigfoot reports. Uh, you know, it's strange. That was the year that the Thunderbird picked up the young boy in Illinois. So 1977, as a focused year, actually, and I think it was David Feivler, who's now a, a publisher, he actually coined the word a year of the creature for 1977. So it was a, a well, lot of things were going on. And I, I bring it up as a way to preface this as, you know, you were knee-deep in a lot of this different research. And so at this time, I mean, you had information readily available to you of lots of different creatures that it, it could have been. And probably the one that's taken the most prominence, I would have to say, is uh, is Martin Kottmeyer's uh, attempt to explain <laughs> it away as a moose. Oh my God, I'm getting sick. Well, I, don't mean, I, don't mean to say, I, I don't mean to say prominence as in you know right. most no, people. I, I mean that seems to be the one most people generate toward uh, because of the the publicity it's gotten, and that is the one that you know you most. I, I'd have to say from reading in Mysterious America, most vehemently deny. Yeah, well, it was the one that was, I mean, some of the ones that we investigated at the time, let me just quickly go over these candidates. Uh, uh, people talked about mangy dogs, mangy coyotes. We looked into all of that. Uh, because there were so many horses there in the community, we looked at uh, whether it was a newborn horse that had pulled itself out on the road or over the rocks. We, we investigated and interviewed all of the stables nearby. It was the wrong time of year for uh, uh, for a lot of them, they said, to be giving birth to horses, you know, baby horses, so it was none of those. It wasn't an escape. didn't seem to be a homeless person. There are no homeless people in Dover. <laughs> so, yeah. so we investigated all those, and then, when was it? It was, uh, I guess, Martin... Caught uh, uh, Myers' uh, claim? Yeah, no, I was looking for the year. In 1998, he published his article called Demon Moose, and uh, my friend Patrick Weege is a magazine they called The Anomalist. And in that, he thought that it was a yearling moose that had come out of the water and its ears were drawn back and that there was seaweed or something in the hooves and that was the 
long fingers that uh, Bartlett and some of the other people had seen. And I, what I do, I mean, I live in Maine. I've lived in Maine for almost half my life now. And and I know moose really well, and I've seen lots of moose. I used to have a cabin up in Rangeley, and I'd go out in the morning and watch moose. I once saw 17 moose together. And so what I, and poor Martin, he's a, he's a chicken farmer in Illinois. And, uh, <laughs> and he just doesn't know his wildlife. So he, he says and claims to have used two wildlife encyclopedias or guidebooks and got his information there. And I just started going through it, and I had to write in the update of Mysterious America about, you know, that moose at the time of April, they get born the, a year earlier in May and June. By the time April comes around, a moose is the size of the Volkswagen that Bartlett was in. Uh, the only time they really pull their ears back is when when they're angry, and not and if they really run into something new like a, a automobile, you'll see them put their ears forward so that they can listen and understand what's going on. So one by one, I started going through, and his demon moose theory just does not fit the Dover demon at all, uh, and uh, it just was really disappointing to see so many people, even including my old friend. Jerry Clark, in one of his uh, newer books, say, you know, nothing other than that theory had grown out of, uh, you know, out of the recent case. And so it it is interesting here, the, the Dover Demon's extremely internationally famous with little toys in Japan, and, and everybody recognizes it, and then along comes the Demon Moose Theory, and it's giving too much prominence without people really looking into it. Also, I, I looked into the old records of, uh, you know, moose were not that prevalent uh, in the 70s as they are now. I mean, that's why they're giving out so many hunting licenses. And the moose that are generally found in Massachusetts and have been found in Massachusetts in the 70s are juvenile males, which are really, you know, two, three, four-year-old moose who are moving out from their families and they're trying to um, mate. And that usually happens in September. And so there are two records, one in Worcester, one in Holden, of moose being uh, captured and relocated uh, on September 30th, 1976, and, and September 29th, 1977. It has nothing to do with the Dover Demon. And, and there's been, you know, we talked a little bit before, some of these more New Age or, or you know, the UFO claims, uh, possible transdimensional beings, as Keith suggested. Right. Uh, and... and a lot of these, as they come up, I mean, they're harder. They're they're probably as hard to disprove as they are to prove. Uh, but well, I agree with my mentor Ivan Sanderson, who said, you know, you cannot explain one unknown with another. Uh, it just doesn't work. So, it, you know, the the fairy folklore, uh, such as uh, another friend of mine, the boards, who said that maybe this was a fairy, and uh, you know, some people relating to ghosts. That's fine. I really respect and like all of these people and understand that it may figure within their cosmos, but it doesn't really explain what the Dover Demon was. And I've found that um, some of the explanations of Native American uh, folklore and mythology and the tie-in with it doesn't necessarily hold water either because a lot of those, um, a lot of the myths and a lot of the characters in those myths seem to uh, reflect the, um, the natives themselves physically more. Right. Um, and and the Dover Demon does not um, resemble 
a human as much as 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 something like a puckwudgie would or, or something well, like that. That's what I was going to mention, Chris. Uh, you've done extensive research into the puckwudgie uh, sightings and, and phenomena. Uh, any kind of similarities or differences between the two? I don't think so, uh, for two main reasons. The first is hair. Uh, puckwudgies, one of the first things that people always tell me about them is that they're hairy. Um, some have even gone so far as to mention certain things on Sesame Street uh, in some areas in, in New Hampshire. The other is um, a lot of the puckwudgie reports that I've got gotten um, talk about the nose, and the nose is really another dominant feature of it, both of which kind of conflict with the Dover Demon. And, Lauren, as, as the years go by uh, and different creatures that people thought didn't exist back in 1977, they're finding out do exist now, uh, are we any closer to finding something in the zoological realm that might match these descriptions? Uh, no, not really. I mean, I, I think that we keep looking, and there's really no new discoveries of something that's hairless like this and has these body proportions. I think the head certainly is overwhelming as far as a feature because there's no features on the head but the eyes so to have something have a figure eight head or a watermelon head and have the strange color of beige to peach to orange uh, certainly is just not in the zoological realm yet just in a physiological sense i mean how often do you encounter animals that have a, a head of that proportion in comparison to the rest of the body and the spindly nature of some of the limbs only the host of Wheel of Fortune, I think. <laughs> <laughs> and, and how about if you could just answer what what the largest amphibian that's been that's been uh, spotted or, or cataloged, I should say. Well, I mean, amphibians are many different animals. So you look at the giant salamander, which can be six feet long. Huh. So uh, giant salamanders are really that uh, you know they're mostly found in Japan and China, with the strange reports from Northern California, but. It doesn't have the same dimensions or proportions. Right. The thing about, for instance, back to the demon moose theory, or even looking at amphibians, here the report of Baxter really throws off everybody because it's bipedal. It's walking, it runs down a gully, and leans against a tree. You can't have a creature that uh, is supposedly amphibian or four-legged all the time and then uh, even bipedal. Bipedalism is, is very rare among animals, and uh, and we know it's it's caused problems for a lot of Bigfoot researchers because they they want to ignore, for instance, you know, the debunkers want to ignore, for instance, that so many of these reports say this thing stands on two feet. And now, today, uh, we're going to talk to Jeff Belanger a little bit about any reports that he's gotten over the years, because I know that he's tried to keep up with this, but uh, do you hear anything of any type of sightings at all, or is it just these three distinct sightings back in 1977. Just these three distinct sightings. I mean, as you probably imagine, I'm a lightning rod for any kind of Dover Demon type stories. And mm -hmm. people, they bring me everything else, but nobody ever brings me anything like the Dover Demon. And I'm going to guess that uh, in being that situation, it kind of lends more credibility uh, to what they're saying because it was a unique sighting and nobody is you know, come forward with other sightings that can be dismissed as, as hoaxes. Unless they crafted those those four individuals, crafted an extremely complex prank mm -hmm. on all of us. It certainly didn't seem like it at the time. It doesn't seem like it today. And I think they saw something very unique, yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, if Matt Moniz and John Horrigan perpetrate a hoax while they're out there tonight and, and that hits the news tomorrow or in the days coming, then that's going to discount what it is that, that these 
individuals saw back in 1977. So the fact that it stands out as unique and that they haven't wavered from what they saw, in, in my mind, just it solidifies their testimony. Oh, yeah. I definitely think they saw something, and I think that this, uh, this is one of the best cases that stood the test of time. It's my favorite one. Well, we, we are going to go into overtime here, Lauren. We're going to go till 1230. We invite you to stay with us if you want, or we understand if, you, if you'd like to go. Um, I'll stay with you, sure. Okay, because we're going to check in with Jeff, and we're going to check in with our field team again uh, following the news. Uh, now, one thing I want to talk to you about before, uh, before we do let you go later on is the re-release of Mysterious America. It's been updated. Uh, when, when is that coming out? Uh, April 24th. Ah, so just a few days yeah. away. Oh, yeah, we're, we're having the big grand... Uh, I'm actually I'm doing you guys first, and then I'm doing Coast to Coast on uh, the 23rd. They were always copying us. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell, tell George and Tom we say hello. Because <laughs> okay. We, we actually, what was it, uh, the show we recently did that they, they jumped the gun on? A, oh, uh, we had Chris Moon uh, from Haunted Times Magazine, and, and we had booked it, and then the next thing you know, I hear him on Coast to Coast the night before. Uh, I was like, oh, man, talk about timing. Well, they're going to talk about Mysterious America in general and go mm-hmm. through every chapter, so. You guys just get the Dover Demon. <laughs> <laughs> well, we want to have you back on to talk about uh, Mysterious America sometime down the line, too. So. Okay, sure. Now, uh, with this new updated version, uh, are there new different stories that might not be in the original books, or are they updates to some of these uh, previously reported stories? Well, the update, it, it's, it's kind of, there are a few updates of different uh, cat stories and some new acknowledgments, all the corrections are changed the new cover and different things like that but one of the major points is that in the you know this is a 1983 book and then in between there's been pod editions that have come out you sound like you've got one of them in your hand yes and i think what simon schuster did, decided to do was take the basic uh, updates that were produced in 2001 add a little enhancements but really change it into a book it's so widely distributed in bookstores online in a way that this book has never really been appreciated uh, by any publisher. So that's that's uh, really what they're pushing. And they even came up with a new subtitle that I don't even remember. It's long and, <laughs> and The silly. Ultimate Guide to the Nation's Weirdest Wonders, Strangest Spots, and Creepiest Creatures. Right, yes. That was their invention. Not <laughs> All right, well, we, we have about two minutes left before the news. We have a call, so let's try and take that real fast. Good evening. You're on Spooky South Coast. How are you doing? Hi, everyone. How are you? All right, how are you? You have a question yeah. for Lauren Coleman regarding the Dover Demon? Actually, no. The Not a question, but the only thing I ever heard, um, actually, back then, was um, actually two guys were in the woods one time messing around hunting or whatever, you know, and uh, I don't know how true it was, but uh, this is from another person that one of them shot something like that. They described something that he had shot. A similar creature? Yeah. Lauren, have you heard anything of... Uh... No, where, where and when? Where's the body? Um, Actually, it was in June. The way they were talking was June, and they left it. They just left it. It, it come out. I mean, it just scared, you know, I guess it, whatever it was hiding or whatever, and it jumped out. And well, maybe and you it, could leave a leave the names of the people that you uh, you heard that from off air, and we could contact them. Did they did they kill it or? Yeah, or that's what they were because they weren't happy. I mean, this is, I'm hearing this is just from a person that supposedly knows the two of them. They you know they were upset with it at first, you know, 
they weren't sure what it was, and after they were, they, you know, they did see it because whoever described the head was gone after that, you know, because he got hit with a 12 gauge, mm -hmm. and uh, but it was, you know, nothing there that was seen, and uh, but you know, you take it with a grain of salt. I never heard anything. To be honest with you, I never heard anything about Dover Demon or anything, and so I didn't. But just by you describing it, you know, oh. I mean, the area. We're yeah. uh, we're coming up on the news, so why don't I? I know that you're a regular listener. And uh, so why don't I have you email me uh, the information of the person that you know that knows them. Maybe we can get to the original source. All right, no problem. All right, and we'll forward that information on to Lauren Coleman. I could, should have called sooner. Sorry about that. <laughs> oh, no problem. Okay. All right, we're about to hit overtime here on Spooky South Coast. We're going to go till 1230. We'll be right back with more right after the CBS News. Stay tuned. Everything is as it was. That's right, boys. Spooky South Coast is burned. I hate this. I like to torture him. I'm not afraid. You will be. Welcome back here, hour number three, I guess. Spooky South Coast going overtime because we are talking about the 30th anniversary of the Dover Demon, uh, one of the most intriguing cases in the world of cryptozoology, uh, definitely one of the you know, major cases in Massachusetts alone. Uh, Chris Balzano of the Massachusetts Paranormal Crossroads is here with us in the Spooky Studio, as is Keith Johnson, demonologist and founder of NIR. Uh, myself and Matt Costa are, are here as well, and we have out in the field science advisor Matt Moniz and John Horrigan. They are out in Dover right now, right near the site where it actually happened. They were at the actual site, but they couldn't get a good enough cell phone reception, so they're just a, a few hundred yards away. We'll check back in with them in a moment. Uh, and we have Jeff Belanger of ghostvillage.com hanging with us for a little bit longer. And, of course, Lauren Coleman, who was the original investigator, the person who, uh, within days of this sighting, was down there interviewing all the key witnesses, all the people that knew these key witnesses to, to try to judge their credibility and uh, has been vigilant in disclaiming some of these other possibilities for it. We'll talk with him a little bit more, too, in just a moment. But before we do, I just want to remind everybody, John Horrigan, who's out in the car with Matt Moniz, uh, has a couple of major announcements he wanted us to make tonight regarding the Mass Monster Mash coming up on Saturday, October 13th at 6 p.m. at Hibernian Hall in Watertown. Uh, they will have, the docket is set, so this is, we're breaking this news first. If you go to massmonstermash.org, you can find out more, but Jeff Belanger, of course, uh, who's on the phone with us, he'll be speaking about the world's scariest ghosts. Lauren Coleman, also on the phone with us, will be talking about the Dover Demon, Don Keating will talk about Ohio's abominable snowman, that is the giant white Bigfoot being seen recorded and videotaped in eastern Ohio, and Karen Mossy will have EVP samples. Uh, Spooky South Coast, of course, will be there broadcasting live, we hope. And also Kristen Gartland from TAPS will be there, Tom D'Agostino, uh, who has been here before talking about Haunted Rhode Island and his forthcoming book Haunted Massachusetts, Chris Balzano of the Mass Paranormal Crossroads, he'll be there as well, and he's here right now with us. So. Yes. 
uh, Chris Pittman, a frequent Spooky South Coast guest, and of course Matt Moni, Spooky South Coast Science Advisor, will be on hand as well. Uh, also, Shag Harbor UFO crashers Don Ledger and Chris Stiles will be there because they'll be speaking the night before, October 12th, for the Mass MUFON conference taking place that night. Uh, Greg Berghorn and Mark Petty from Mass MUFON will all be speaking about crop circles in Massachusetts. Uh, they'll also talk about flying black triangles and, of course, Carl Feint, world-renowned expert on USOs, U- unidentified submarine <laughs> objects for those who don't know, not the USO, the soldier organization. Yeah, that's what I thought. Sorry. Also a worthy cause. Uh, there will be trivia, prizes, souvenirs, concessions, and exhibits each night. Uh, will be $20 for the ticket. For more info, log on to MassMufon.com or MassMonsterMash.org. And also, another major announcement. We hinted at it before, but it's, it's official now. The Mass Mystery Tour will take place September 15th. Uh, if, if you'd like to go out there, you can get in touch with uh, John Horrigan there because he's going to be putting on this unbelievable uh, event. Uh, the Beatles' Magical Mystery Tour took place 40 years ago to that day. They went through Taunton, England, and they'll be going through Taunton, Massachusetts. Matt Moniz and Chris Balzano will co-host that event. There will be trivia, video, audio clips, snacks, prizes, a scavenger hunt uh, out the bus window along the route, music, a sing-along, and puzzles. They'll stop at selected alleged haunted areas in the Bridgewater Triangle and conclude with a dog race, and uh, that will be taking place at the Random Dog Track. Uh, the original Magical Mystery Tour had 33 selected friends, musicians, comedians, actors, and circus freaks, and so will the Mass Mystery Tour. Uh, Costa, you're going to be the delegated circus freak for that one. Uh, it'll start and end at the random dog track. Uh, only one person will know the final route, just as only Paul McCartney knew the route of the 1967 Magical Mystery Tour. Uh, speakers will talk about only their particular segments. They're not going to know what's coming up. Stops will coincide with the Beatles stops along the Magical Mystery Tour. They'll pass the hat and give the proceeds to a selected charity. So they're also working on the possibility of getting a DVD together and uh, maybe tying this into the Mass Monster Mash sometime in the future. So stay tuned for more information on that. That just sounds like such a, a unique and outstanding event. And uh, who knows, maybe they can even get Lauren Coleman to ride along on the bus since uh, he is the one that came up with the term Bridgewater Triangle. So now that we've uh, let you know about those events, stay tuned to SpookySouthCoast.com and we'll stay up to date with them uh, as more information becomes available. Right now we'll go back to the phones for the final about 20 minutes or so so we can talk more about the 30th anniversary of the Dover Demon. Uh, Lauren, uh, I don't know if you'd want to participate in that magical mystery tour or not, but uh, I'm sure you've seen many of these different locations in the Bridgewater Triangle that we're talking about in in all your years of investigating it. Is there anything about the triangle lately that you've heard? Well, the the latest thing that I heard was um, was that the state hospital there is actually experiencing a cluster of inmate suicides, mm-hmm. and we certainly know that many institutions do have these come in clusters. But when I got that news release that they were happening in the Bridgewater Triangle area, I just thought, oh no, not again. And then also the, the editor of Taps uh, magazine had contacted me that he recently was given a new report from the Bridgewater Triangle of a, a 1999 case of a big, Bigfoot sighting at a Standish, Mani- Standish Miles Manufacturing Company. So I'm trying to track down some more information on that because even even old cases that are less than 10 years old are not cold. And Jeff Belanger uh, from ghostvillage.com I talked to you a little bit off the air about if there are any uh, incoming reports uh, still to this day about the Dover Demon or, or similar creatures, and, and you said that you haven't, and that's what impresses you about it? 
Yeah, I think what's interesting about the case is that uh, there haven't been copycats or frauds or, or people saying, yeah, I saw it. Uh, even though, you know, the town of Dover, you know, identifies a little bit with this this event now, you know, the the, the Dover Demon, it's, it's kind of a, a part of the town. Um, and, and that's probably the biggest surprise is that we haven't had more reports. It's, it's funny you should mention how the town identifies with the Dover Demon. Let's bring up science advisor Matt Moniz, who is actually in Dover, and he had an interesting uh, account of just a few moments ago with the authorities in Dover. Matt, why don't you uh, tell everybody what happened? Well, they just drove by again and waved hi to us. Well, there's apparently a lot of people out looking for the Dover Demon tonight. Uh, we, uh, John Horgan and I, were kind enough to speak to one of the officers. We saw us over here on the. We are we are pulled over in a, an, an appropriate lay-by on the side of the road. Well, out of the way of traffic, and we're secure, and we're in a in a good location, and they know who we are and where we are, and that we're doing a radio show. Uh, they've got a hold of some trespassers in the field near us. People out looking for the Dover Demon. There are several police officers traveling up and down the roads where these uh, events occurred, uh, chasing people and uh, shooing them away, so to speak. Now, now Lauren, you've seen this in other uh, cryptid cases where uh, the towns become synonymous with the creatures that are sighted there. Uh, you, you think of uh, the Mothman Festival, the Bigfoot Festival. I mean, people celebrate this. Why hasn't the Dover Demon gotten that kind of, uh, I don't know, event coverage like some of these other cases have? Yeah, I, I have been surprised that it hasn't become a, a Roswell-type uh, situation or at least an annual celebration. But I, I think it has a lot to do with the personality of this town. Mm-hmm. Like we've said many times, it's a, a well-to-do, uh, upper-middle-class town, bedroom community near Boston. People really, while they respect that something happened there, I don't think that they feel any need to exploit it and have a tourist, uh, you know, situation where they have a little museum or anything or even to get more tourists there they probably as we're seeing and that's a great report from the field by the way i'm glad those guys are out there to talk to the police you know we're we're seeing now maybe because of the anniversary that there's people there and i'm sure the police officers and the local residents don't appreciate that mm-hmm. and in 30 years uh, since the original sighting i mean uh, it's probably something that's come up from time to time uh, in terms of you know people out there on the anniversary looking for it. But I think uh, now these days where people are really starting to accept cryptozoology uh, more in general studies, I mean, I, I know that it's a, it is a, a hard science as, as far as we're all concerned, but uh, now that it's being taught, I mean, I know somebody that actually in the classroom, their teacher brings up a lot of cryptids as, you know, and sooner or later we'll be able to explore this area more. I mean, it's becoming more something that's taught in schools. Is that what's going to lead to a lot more people trying to get out there and investigate some of these cases? Sure. I think that uh, when I was uh, in school in the university, there's not one of my professors that even knew about cryptozoology or, or would accept the abominable snowman research. And now what we're finding is we have a whole generation of people that have been raised with cryptozoology being a very well-grounded science and now they are the professors, and so it's really changing. And, of course, for the Dover Demon, the tw- on the 20th anniversary, the Internet really wasn't a factor. It was just kind of getting off the ground. And, and now with the Internet, the Dover Demon is worldwide, mm-hmm. and, and there's lots of interchange, so it's become much, much more famous. And we were talking, you were just talking before about how there's more uh, professors that are teaching cryptozoology now. 
in earlier years, was it a matter of because it wasn't recognized with degrees by different universities that you found there was like a, a lot of people calling themselves cryptozoologists when they really didn't have any background in, in zoology or anthropology? No, no, you didn't have people calling themselves cryptozoologists at all. You had uh, mostly the skeptical approach dominating academia. I mean, I was connected for a with a university for the last 20 years, and the one or two times that it came up, people would say, oh, you, you mean you believe in little green men? So there's still that attitude mm -hmm. there, but it's only really, I'd say, within the last decade that we're seeing people who are proud to say, I'm an anthropologist and I study Bigfoot. Uh, you know, so it, it's just that kind of shift that's gone on. I mean, not, not to compare the, the, two, uh, the two disciplines, but you know, Keith Johnson being a demonologist, I know you're seeing an influx lately in you know, every paranormal group has somebody that they call their demonologist, and it's somebody who's done a little bit of studying but hasn't really gotten their feet wet in the field and have in the background. And I've noticed, Lauren, that there are a lot of paranormal groups now that have a resident cryptozoologist, and they may not have right. any kind of schooling in that area. Yeah, no, I think you're correct. With the recent explosion, I mean, I was looking on web, one website the other day, and they were saying, we're appointing somebody to be our director of cryptozoology. And the person really had a background that, that really wasn't scientific or zoological. And so it, it has become the, the kind of the new word to use with a certain group of people but uh and that might uh, pollute the field uh, if you have people that aren't exactly i hope we we really have some universities take it on so we can see some degrees or some kind of criteria put on the word that's really been used very kind of casually for many years and and jeff on ghost village you get lots of reports of different haunting sightings and and are you seeing a similar thing with the, the paranormal groups that you've been in contact with do you see a lot of them you know, trying to bring cryptozoology into what it is they're investigating? Uh, you know, whether we like it or not, uh, interest in the paranormal comes and goes mm -hmm. um, in various parts of the paranormal. Uh, right now, I think UFOs are heating up again, and ghosts uh, have been really hot for a number of years, and this, these things come in cycles. And I think you're, we're seeing paranormal groups respond to those cycles, respond to the trends, as opposed to really dedicating, you know, uh, to, to a specific field of study, they're, they're chasing trends like, wow, you know, maybe we can get a TV show if we bring in, you know, a cryptozoologist who can also be a demonologist and who's a psychic who can juggle. <laughs> <laughs> I'd watch that show. <laughs> I would too. And uh, in fact, boy, someone's probably going to sit, it'll be on soon. And they'll <laughs> be on the mystery tour. That's right. <laughs> yeah, because well, there's only 33 people, so. Yeah, but that, well, and, and I, so, I mean, I think we've always seen that uh, in you know, but then there's the people that have been in it for a long time and just do what they do, and um, I think those are the ones that we'll respect in the end. Yeah, I, I definitely see the shift to uh, if you want to get funded, you've got to definitely be involved with uh, reality TV, and that certainly has, has changed people who used to just be a ufologist into a cryptobiologist. <laughs> Well, I mean, Lauren, we, we've seen you on, on many TV specials in the past and, and different documentaries. I mean, is, is there, at least that you're aware of, is there a real calling in the reality TV genre for more people to be involved in cryptozoology? I know uh, the Sci-Fi oh. Channel did a recent foray into it a bit, but... Well, I, you know, I've been involved with documentary films and taught a course at university for 13 years and actually have blogged about this very subject that they're looking for young blonde women. No, I mean, 
<laughs> no, at some level you have to be attractive. You have to mm-hmm. you have to reflect their audience that they want to gain. And so you can be in this field for almost 50 years like I am, and I'm never going to be a host of anything or even sometimes be a consultant because I'm getting too old for their market. They, w- they want you to be media presentable, in other words, right? Yeah, and I'm, I'm great for a, a clip, but uh, you'll get some of these young people. And I mean, Animal X, Travel Channel, they all have an on-air host who is becoming like a talking head news person. They don't know anything about the subject, but they look great on camera. Mm-hmm. I've, I've noticed, too, even in the paranormal, there's a, 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 a famous you know, Hollywood type who, who's produced some documentaries in the past, and he's come up with a, a weekly paranormal newscast, and he immediately puts an actress out there as, as the face of these newscasts. And it's like, well, what are your what's your background? Well, I've had a few experiences. Well, that's not good enough for me. Just like you've read a few of Lauren Coleman's books isn't good enough for me. I want to hear from Lauren Coleman. Yeah, well, that's okay. I mean, I understand it's all, it's just part of what needs to be done for them because really uh, documentary, reality programs are more about in- entertainment than they are about news. Yeah. Lauren, are you finding that there is um, an interest in uh, younger people? in terms of cryptozoology, or even uh, older people are discovering it for the first time? Oh, I, I get emails 8 to 88. You know, okay. it's, it's really a, a lot of people. I mean, I'm, I'm hearing from people who come up to me at a book signing about some more recent book, and they say, you know, when I was 12 years old, I read Creatures of the Outer Edge, and that changed my life. So those are very encouraging kinds of things. And then, you know, I, I get probably, I think there's about three emails I've got tonight. I've got a report to next week. I'm 12 years old. I'm in such and such grammar school. Could you send me everything you know about Bigfoot? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you guys get those too, but I get them so much. And I've, I've always tried to respond as much as possible, but it is becoming overwhelming. I get those, too, and I always say the same thing. Why don't you contact Lauren Coleman? <laughs> Thank you. Here's his email address. Well, I know this guy that's writing a book called Weird Massachusetts. You should really. Oh, man. It's like a tennis match. We just send him back and forth. Volley points there. All right. So, uh. Set him to Moniz. No, I actually started. I put a FAQ up on my website so people could maybe find some answers there. Well, I don't even think you've written everything you know about Bigfoot yet, Lauren. I don't think you've had the time yet. No, no, I haven't. I get distracted by current events sometimes. It, it is. It's strange um, when you think about the wealth of uh, the wealth, of the volumes of information that's been written by the people that we have on the phone right now, and they have two hour, two and a half hours to just sit and talk to us. How do you guys crank these books out? <laughs> well, so. because it's late. You know, I mean, do you, you know where I'm going on the uh, 24th? I'm flying off to uh, Lake Champlain to be go over with a, a Japanese mini expedition looking for champs. So. Oh. Can I go? What? Can I go? Can you go? Can I go, please? We've got Okie Pokey right in Warwick, Rhode Island. Yeah, Yeah, I know. Well, it'll be fun to be over there for a couple days, a little break from everything else. I'll bring my own scoop of gear. (laughs) You know what? Just, just. So who's that talking? That that's Matt Moniz. Oh, oh. is he uh, is he diving in the creek yet? (laughs) Uh, Give me time. He, he will. Don't, it's warm enough. He might just. He's probably collecting so, samples. So before you go, I'd like to ask him, could he estimate how many people is is he seeing there in Dover wandering around? Uh, uh, we saw at least 
four people get uh, the, the hustle by the police. Not arrested, just kind of escorted away? Yeah, uh, asked to move along after they ransacked through their car and, you know, given the basic, you know, what for is that police will do. Well, since let it's you so know close. That they were, aren't happy. Yeah, yeah. Were they looking like they were just looking for the Dover Demon and a party? Combination thereof, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's they, they came up, asked if we were all right. We explained that we're a radio show, we're doing what we're doing there. They were cool with it, and then they went and proceeded to hustle and bustle out all of the other people meandering about. So were they the Dover PD? Yes, and one okay. state police. Did you guys take pictures? Uh, unfortunately, no. Oh, too bad. Would have been great for the website. <laughs> yeah, it would have. We were parked a little too far away. I mean, because I was amazed that uh, the Dover police, the first week I was investigating this, they put the picture up on the up on their bulletin board to see if anybody else had seen it. Well, what was interesting about this police officer, is he was from New Jersey, he says, I don't know anything about the Dover demon, but I can tell you anything you want to know about the Jersey Devil. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that, that, that's a future I show. I don't that'll be another show. Yeah. Good synchronicity, though. Yeah. We'll send Moniz and Horrigan down into the Pine Barrens, and uh, who knows if we'll, if they'll make it back. Right. They, they might end up getting Wax Soprano style down there. We uh, we thank you for joining us tonight, Lauren. And uh, again, sure. it's been fun. On, on the 24th, now uh, just a few days away, is the re-release of Mysterious America. You can get it in bookstores everywhere and on Amazon.com. And can you order it through your website, Lauren? Uh, I'm sure they can. Okay. Uh, they could just find my email, clip there, and uh, click there, and I'll, I'll talk to them about what I have available. Okay, and of course, always check out anything in this catalog. Uh, tons of great information there, and we'll have him back on hopefully uh, in the future to talk about many other cryptid cases as well as some of his work outside of the field of cryptozoology. So, thank you again, uh, especially for staying late and and for being one of the first investigators on this case and for being so thorough in your investigation that you know we can have this night where we can discount some possibilities and, and keep that intrigue alive okay well thank you for inviting me it's been lots of fun all right thanks take care bye-bye jeff belanger ghostvillage.com thank you for joining us and for hanging out with us all night long yeah it's been great and may 5th is the eastern paranormal conference yep we will be there in Haverhill. and my uh, my talk will be jeff belanger the legend <clears throat> so I'll just I'm be talking. I'm definitely going to heckle you then. <laughs> I'll be talking for an hour about Jeff Bellinger and his influence in the paranormal community. <laughs> uh, you can talk for more than an hour about that. And uh, so we will definitely be talking to you soon. And Matt Moniz, John Horrigan, thank you for, for going out there and, and hanging out all night long. Not a problem. We can head back now. Oh, yeah. You can go home. <laughs> go home, get some rest, because uh, we're going to be up all night for a couple nights this week, too. So. All right, brother. All right. I'll, I will, uh, I'll see you Tuesday. Chris, have a good one. Thank you, uh, Tim. Uh, and thank you, uh, Keith, for keeping my heat warm. Yeah, it's nice and warm now. <laughs> <laughs> All right, take care, guys. Have a safe ride right. back. And uh, if the demon does decide to hook back up with you, make sure you take pictures. You got it. All right, see you later. <laughs> All right, so that is our 30th anniversary episode dedicated to the Dover Demon. Uh, Chris Balzano, uh, you have, in addition to these paranormal happenings that we've yeah. talked about you have something a little bit not paranormal coming yeah a little up. bit not paranormal um next sunday i have the uh, walk for ms in boston um my father was recently diagnosed with ms and we as a family are kind of going out there and supporting him and so uh i'm just kind of putting the call out to anyone who's out there that uh 
that might have an interest in, in kind of sponsoring a, a worthy cause, um, we're walking. You can go to my site um, and click on the link, and you can donate. And we're just trying to raise as much as possible. And so. we we also want to take this chance to say hello to our new friend Conrad out in Munich, Germany, who emailed us earlier with some interesting information he has about a, a similar case of the red-headed hitchhiker. Apparently the red-headed hitchhiker uh, can hop a ride on boats, too, and go over to Europe. We well, have a similar case there. We'll, we'll talk to him, and we'll see if we can find out more in the future. And uh, we also want to say congratulations to our friends Grant Wilson and Jason Hawes for a first successful broadcast of Beyond Reality Radio on our sister station, WPRO-AM in Providence. You can check them out every Saturday night from 8 to 10. You can listen live on 6.30 a.m. if you're in the Providence area, or you can listen online at WPRO's website, uh, beyondrealityradio.com. That will connect you right to it. And check out some of their upcoming shows. Keith pulled double duty. He called into that show earlier. <laughs> I was like, "Wow, this 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 guy can pull it all off." Well, I had so. to welcome them in. Yeah. Absolutely, we were going to send over pizza and beer, but we didn't know if uh, anybody danced at the door. So, uh, but we congratulations to them on on that first initial show. And guys, trust us, it doesn't get any easier from there. So, uh, until next week, when we come back with a former Taps member, Donald Lacroix, we want you all to stay spectacular. Rest assured, listener, that my time here has not been easy, and what you have just heard was not fiction. Although, in many a desperate moment, I most certainly wish it had been. It's over for now, it seems. Or at least, until yesterday begins again. Tomorrow, tomorrow, tomorrow. I know the supernatural is something that isn't supposed to happen.